As has been mentioned already more than once, it is a delightful privilege and in fact a great honor on this first day of the week for each of us to have been given the opportunity to assemble and to do so for the express purpose of magnifying the name of our God of heaven, to appreciate the sacrifice of His blessed Son, and to understand that our worship in spirit and in truth not only carries out the message for all of the universe, but certainly benefits you and I in such a dramatic fashion. The lesson, as you may have noted by virtue of its title this morning, has as its text taken from that passage read just a moment ago from the fifth chapter of the book of Isaiah. I'd over the next few moments invite you to think with me about some issues, some matters that can be of great helpfulness to you and to me as we give thought to the blessing of a new year if God so sees fit to be with us in that regard for just a few more days. You and I noticed last Lord's Day morning we considered a lesson that had some questions in it and some encouragement for each of us to think about using this book, perhaps like never before, as a bedrock standard and appreciation of knowledge as we approach the coming year. It does have all the answers for not only life that's spiritual, but certainly even the best kind of life in terms of just physical life upon earth. Perhaps these introductory thoughts might be of some help to us as we continue that thought in a lesson with a title that you and I have noted already. You and I live in confusing times. It may be that you and I are aware that many about us have so many questions. Questions that quite frankly attack and are impressed with the very basic issues of life. Questions that you and I recognize by the nature of them are exceedingly important. And questions that determine not only the way that one lives here, but without doubt, determine the way in which one shall find him or herself after death. These times are so confusing that it's bothersome, it's frightening, it's troubling. Because you and I, perhaps as those that are older, recognize we have waded the waters to a, to a certain degree. But there's rising a generation and the one after that one who are in the midst of a morass of confusion so great and so troubling that we can't help but be concerned for them. These matters of confusion bring us to recognize that there seem to be, however, perhaps in troubling character, a large number of people in our society who are not bothered by the confusion. In fact, they almost revel in it. And may I suggest to you that that particular thought is so troubling, it really is a thought for the lesson today. We noted last Lord's Day about the nature of the Word of God and the basic character that it presents to us. But let me suggest to you that, quite frankly, one of the most powerful attacking methods that the devil employs is to prey upon confusion. To in fact develop confusion to a point where even Christians begin to wonder, well maybe that isn't so troubling, maybe it isn't so terrible, maybe that really isn't as bad as what my parents thought it was. Maybe they were just being old fashioned, maybe they were just being too legalistic and too narrow in their thinking. After all, you and I would never wish to bind anything that God hasn't bound, nor would we ever wish to demand of others what God would not ask of them. But confusion in the way that we see it today is a matter that is greatly bothering, isn't it? In fact, isn't it true that in most arenas of life, confusion is not something that we find favorable? 
After all, in the arena of science, for example, when there's a particular phenomenon, the basics of which are not understood, rather than live with the confusion, we investigate. We hypothesize, we analyze, we perform one or more experiments, we analyze the data, we draw a conclusion in the hope of removing the uncertainty. But doesn't it seem that in many ways the confusion is almost desirable in the mind of some? As you can see on that slide before you, some of those matters of confusion attack the most basic consideration of what constitutes that which is right and that which is wrong. It may well be that you and I would say that there's nothing arguably more fundamental than that in terms of life and in terms of the ramifications for life hereafter. What is wrong and what is right? But you and I live in an arena and in a time in which there are many who would say that question is not nearly as important as you may think it is. They would argue that that is something for you and I to determine individually. And what's more, no one else has any right to argue that my perspective isn't just as good as anybody else's. So what is wrong and right? You'll notice that if you and I as Christians begin to accept such thinking, then we will slip immediately into the clutches of the devil. If he can ever cause a degree of wonderment in your mind and mine, ever getting us to compromise on those considerations of truth, he has won. Plain and simple, he has won. It's no wonder then in culture as the years proceed to ebb their way by us. And there seems to be a larger number of those who accept these matters that, well, maybe this isn't so large a consideration if that works its way into your life and mine, and if we don't repent of it, we're destined for hell. If it works its way into a congregation, that congregation finds itself on a slippery slope that leads nowhere good. If it finds its way into a family, it leads a family into sleepless nights and problems and troubles of marvelous and great order. It's no wonder in light of all of that, I would like to use this lesson as a way to help challenge all of us as we again think about a coming year to perhaps appreciate the bedrock anchor that's provided by what wrong and right is as it relates to the Word of God. And not only that, to encourage each of us to be ever more respectful of applying those thoughts in life. Because quite frankly, we live in an arena in which many would laugh at this book. And there are many even in high places in our land who give little if any consideration to it. They think that there's a better way than this. They think that there's a more scholarly, more professional, more up-to-date way. And in so doing, they think that, quite frankly, the Bible's a little on the outdated side. But as you and I come to those thoughts today, you'll notice that one of the things that that causes is the very matter of these pictures. Look at the top left picture if you would. That is a picture of a ship whose anchor broke. And so it drifted on the sea and finally ran aground off the coast of Denmark. Consider for a moment what that indicates. There was a time when the anchor was holding firm and that ship was properly moored in a location in a place of safety. When the anchor broke, when the anchor came loose, 
the ship ran aground. May I suggest that's what you and I will do if our anchor isn't in place. It's what a family will do when its anchor isn't in place. It's what a church will do when its anchor is not as it ought to be. You notice at the bottom right is just a what I thought was an interesting picture giving the implication of what is true if there's the anchor in place. The chain is steadily fixed. The anchor is rigidly attached to what it needs to be. That ship is steady. Even in the storms of life, even in great blowing winds of difficulty and problems, that chain will hold firm. So too, you and I have been given a steady anchor. That anchor is, of course, presented by virtue of the Word of God, and it could be the solution for our land if only it would be approached. It is the solution for families if only it will be utilized. And it is that anchor that I would invite you and I to look at the opposite circumstance today. Last Sunday morning, we looked at the anchor of the Word of God. What happens? What are some of the things with right and wrong that seem to come to pass if that anchor is not in place? I would invite you to think with me about it from the following perspective. Sad, sad, sad. You and I are not living in the first times to face questions and issues and matters like this one. In fact, in a moment we're going to revisit the book of Isaiah. And we shall look carefully at the fifth chapter of that book. And I believe you'll be able to see with me how that even those people in that day and in that time faced problems very much similar to those you and I face today in terms of our land, in terms of our approach to things. And we'll listen to God's indictment of that circumstance and we'll listen to what He had to say about it. As we do so, though, let's build our consideration to appreciate the life and times before we look at that chapter in great detail. First, think about the antiquity of the book of Isaiah. It wasn't just written 50 or 100 years ago. It's not as if it's a modern book in that sense of the word, but notice. A full three-quarters of a millennium before the Lord was born, the book of Isaiah was written. It described a time period then long, long ago from your perspective and mine. But yet as you look at the nature of that book, appreciate that the children of Israel by that time had already lived beneath the law of Moses for over 700 years. They knew what those laws had asserted. They understood the nature of the tabernacle and following that, the temple. They knew well what was involved in proper service to the God of heaven. It is the case though that during that period, Judah enjoyed a number of interesting times. You'll notice in that third particular point that, I've, that I would invite you to observe with me, look carefully at the southern kingdom of Judah. There was a time period when Judah enjoyed a, an area of prosperity. All seemed to go relatively well during the time of King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the fourth king of Judah. After he passed away, the kingdom spiraled downward with almost one wicked, ungodly king after another. Times got worse and worse. And you and I remember some of the people that ultimately reigned over them, people like Ammon, people like Manasseh. That brings me to a comment. There was a long period of decline. They slipped away from the Word of God. 
They slipped away from the truth of the things God had revealed to them. They became enamored with materialism and other kinds of issues that we shall see in Isaiah 5. As they became enamored with them, no doubt one of the prompting mechanisms was their leader. He was an individual, and you well notice, influenced by none other than the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And she was just as bad as her mother was. She led the people astray. She encouraged all kinds of ungodly activity. And she was interested not in serving Jehovah, but she was interested in Baal and all the other features and attributes of Canaanite religion. And she enforced it in the kingdom. No wonder as you come near the bottom, we find that this influence was so grand that the decline in morality was rampant. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? As you slide away from the Word of God, suddenly what's right and wrong becomes clouded in people's mind. It becomes confusing to them, for they no longer have an anchor to tell them what the answer is. They no longer look to the solution found by way of the Word of God. Is it any wonder? Then you come to Isaiah 5 and listen then to a people who, though they had the Word of God, it had slipped from them. They had begun to neglect it. God will have these kinds of things to say to them. I'll simply select a few of the verses of that chapter, but please note with me verse number 18. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. I find that such an intriguing passage. Let's unfold it somewhat briefly. It says, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity. In other words... God here pictures through the words of Isaiah a people who in fact imagine sin is out there and they've got ropes tied to it, pulling it to them. They're interested in more sin. They want to involve themselves in greater amounts of it. And he goes on to say in verse 18, and sin as it were with a cart rope. In other words, they load the sin on a cart so they can haul more of it to them. Sound a little bit like the modern era? It's not as if they like sin at a distance and to avoid it, they want to be wallowing right in the midst of it. You'll notice that there seem to be several ideas in which that kind of presentation is found in the Word of God. Wasn't it Micah who in Micah 7 verses 2 through 4 made observation of the fact that they sin with both hands earnestly? It's not as if one hand is enough. Later we recognize throughout the Word of God in Isaiah 30 verse 1, they add sin to sin. It's almost as though they want a double helping of it. Isn't it interesting in light of all of that? Here again was a picture of the ancient Judah. Is it any wonder in light of all of that that God makes some more comments to them? Observe the following with me. Earlier in that chapter, verse number 13, Therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Much might be said about that verse, but observe, God says my people into captivity. Why God? What has happened? What are the details of this particular time? He says, because they have no knowledge. By virtue of their ignorance and their neglect, the overlooked character of the Word of God, their knowledge of what's most important is exceedingly lacking. 
and in so doing, into captivity. Their sin will lead them there. Note next, their honorable men are famished. Consider this. There were some honorable people in ancient Judah. We shouldn't think that every single person was just wicked, but notice the honorable ones were famished. The people who still did have honor, who who did respect the ways of God, it says they were famished. That word famished brings us to realize they were suffering. People made fun of them. People, in fact, looked upon them with a condescension in their thoughts and processes. They looked upon them as if they simply were inappropriate, narrow-minded, and obsolete. Famished. Sound a little bit like our modern era? Finally, you'll notice their multitude dried up with thirst. As that generation was passing away, as the multitude of those that were honorable were becoming fewer and fewer, it says it's like they're drying up with thirst. I say all of this to help you and me be solidly anchored perhaps like never before because I suspect in our culture we're going to need it. You'll notice that as you look at verse number 20 and 21, it brings us to the lesson text of the day. What else was descriptive of this ancient people? Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. You and I know well that the basic definition of what's evil must be given by God. Man is not capable of defining that. After all, evil by definition is that which is opposed to the godliness which is God. And yet we find in that ancient consideration that there were individuals who took what was evil and yet called it good. And they took what was good and yet called it evil. They were so confused. They were so mixed up. Their anchor was gone. Isn't that right? It was such that they no longer were anchored to the great truth of the Word of God, such that evil was readily identified, readily characterized, and readily on display. It was to be avoided. On the other hand, what's good, again, comes by definition from the God of heaven. And they had the nerve to call what was evil good and what was good evil. You and I are beginning to see, again, a portrait of the modern era that couldn't have been written any better. And yet it describes something 2,750 years ago. Is it any wonder, as you and I give thought to it, maybe you and I can ponder even in our present day, does it seem as though there are those that call what's evil good and vice versa? Are there those who are so naive and so neglectful of the things of God that they are happy to take what by its very definition is evil and yet twist it to apparently what in their mind is good and vice versa. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, it's complete confusion, isn't it? And that was descriptive of that ancient era so long ago. Among other things, doesn't that directly tell us that there is something known as evil? Because here were some who were calling it good, We live in a time when there are those who will say there is no evil. It's simply a figment of imagination. May we never in our mind allow that to take root. There is evil. The Bible says so. As you think about the existence of it, go on to what's next. In verse 20, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. 
Isn't it true that in a way that almost is humorous? You and I know what it's like to be in darkness. And we know what it's like to appreciate the light. Can you imagine someone so confused that they call what's darkness light and vice versa? You'll notice on that slide, one of the first things that God did was dispel darkness. In Genesis chapter 1, when He was creating all the things that you and I were to appreciate, the first thing on day one, let there be light. And there was light. And He divided the darkness from the light. He called the light day and the darkness night. And it has been the desire of the God of heaven to dispel darkness ever since. Now the devil likes darkness. He wants to cloud your mind and mind with uncertainty and confusion. And he wants us to cloud wrong and right. But God doesn't wish that. God wants us to appreciate that there is a truth. And that truth is the light, 1 John 1, verses 5 and 6. As you can see, one more comparison in verse number 20. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I think each of us know very well the distinction in those things, and we grow up and learn it well. There are some things like our desserts that we wish and we desire them to be sweet. We don't see many desserts made out of spinach and mushrooms. They're not sweet. And yet, isn't it true that here were people God characterized as these are putting bitter for sweet and vice versa. Talk about confusion. You'll notice verse 21 completes at least the majority of our thinking for this section of the lesson by saying, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. I would use that point to help us see this as well. Secular education is not the answer for this problem. We live in the modern era and arguably the most educated nation in the world. We have our schools and then there's additional schooling, but yet the more we become educated, the more ignorant we are of these most basic truths. And it is then the case that that same thing was true of the ancient era as well. One last thing at the bottom of that slide. So could you and I notice in this context the reason for all these problems? Let me read verse 24. So as you and I think, here's a group of people. They've put bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. They've put darkness for light, light for darkness. They've put good for evil and vice versa. Here's the problem, verse 24. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. There was their problem. They had cast aside the law of God that defined good, and that defined evil, that identified sweet and bitter, and that identified light and darkness. The slippery slope of the United States of America and, yea, many other countries around the world brings us to see time and again that these issues are now before us. If we had any doubts about it, just think about some of these matters and it is going to impact the church. There's no doubt about it. Right and wrong. The basic thing that you and I as parents striving to teach our children about what is wrong and what is right, and we have others in our land that say, that's not so. 
You have no right to question or at least call into consideration the way another person lives. That's his choice. And yet God says that's sin. And that's not to be tolerated. It's to be encouraged that they would understand what God would have them to know. This whole matter of right and wrong. What about Matthew 7 verses 13 and following? Didn't Jesus say, Enter ye into the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. Jesus Himself said that there is a straight way. That way that, of course, is the way of light, the way of sweet, the way of good. But yet the world wants to call it something else. But that doesn't change the truth of what it is. That whole issue of wrong and right perhaps is exemplified in two very quick ways. I'll simply use one, lying. The words that you and I speak. I was a bit interested to know, have there been any surveys, any research done? And unfortunately, the answers varied so much, I don't know how much truth we can put in it. But at least all of them indicate an issue. According to one source I found... Typical person lies four times a day. Another source I found indicated 30 lies a day. Another indicated that in every 10 minutes of conversation, there's three lies. I'd invite you to take from that what you might, but again, if any of them's true, there's a problem, isn't there? That you and I live in a culture where lying is acceptable, that lying is okay. It's a part of the way one transacts business. It's a part of the way that one interacts with others. But God says that's not acceptable. And may you and I not allow it to be taken as a compromised thing in our lives, in what we would accept of those over whom we have jurisdiction and family. In Ephesians 4.25, God said, Speak every man truth with his neighbor. And didn't God say Himself, as the book of Revelation comes to its close, that among those that shall inhabit hell, liars are on the list. Revelation twenty-two fifteen, Revelation 21, 8. It's certainly safe to say then that this message is the one that so often the world winks at. That's really not that significant. But God says that it is. You'll notice that another matter that seemingly takes the spotlight almost on a daily basis, is the choice of homosexuality, the choice of a lifestyle directed toward that end. And make no mistake about it, the media portrays that almost daily. They want it in the public eye. And we know the reason why. You and I are encouraged time and again to appreciate that is just as acceptable as any other style of life when God says it is not so. It was a type of choice that, of course, was made in the ancient era and God dealt with it forcefully, Leviticus 20 as well as Leviticus 18. He dealt with it in powerful truth in terms of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1 and Romans 1. There's no question that it's sinful. At this point, though, you'll now notice that the church is being forced to consider it. There have already been mentions, I think Roger pointed out not long back, congregations not too far from here in which the preacher was not allowed to preach on this subject under threat 
of what would befall him if he did. Congregations forced to accept it. A government overwhelmingly endorsing it. What shall come in time to pass? What does 2014 hold relative to it? I don't know. But this much we all know. That the Word of God is just as strong on identifying that as it does any other kind of sin. And we live in a world that tries to call good evil and evil good. I hope that we've each been reminded that as the coming year approaches, as we use the Word of God as the proper anchor to life, how sweet it is that God has given us the anchor. We have not to meander through life wondering about this or that, but rather thankful we can be that the answers are provided. Shouldn't that bring us great solace and great comfort? Sure it should. It is for that reason we come near the bottom of that slide. And notice that in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 25 through 30, we won't read those closing verses of that chapter, but I would ask you to look at them after the lesson sometime today. God has identified a people that call good evil and vice versa. They mix up sweet and bitter and they mix up light and dark. What would happen to them, God says? Verse 25, I'll pour my anger out upon them. Verses 26 and following, a nation will come up against them and overpower them. They will be taken into captivity. They will be removed from all the blessings I've given them. They will suffer due to their lacking of the law of God and their movement from it. I would encourage all of us to pray for our land. In the coming year, among the things we can do is that to pray that you and I will remain anchored as we should and to allow our congregation to do so, but to pray for our country, our land that might allow us to continue to enjoy these freedoms that we do, and a land that might appreciate that there is an evil and that the way it's going does not encourage an understanding of that evil. As we draw this lesson today to its conclusion, we might well conclude it with a summary statement like this. The admonishment given in the Word of God for you and for me to be strong. You and I are to be armed in Ephesians 6 with all the things God has given us. Helmet, spear, sword, breastplate, all the other features. And all of those are to help us so that we might be able to stand and have done all in the evil day to stand. The devil does have a great influence, and there are many he's leading down that slippery slope to doom. But may we, with care, use an anchor so that we'll not slide down that slope. Today, are you a faithful member of the body of Christ? Are you anchored like no other with the only anchor that will last through eternity? If you are not today, why not? Why not? This particular day is a day that many choose to think about celebrating the greatest gift God ever gave. 2 Corinthians 9.15, may I submit to you, we, of course, longing to celebrate that every first day of the week with the thought of our surrounding the table, remembering His death, and we on every day are thankful for His church. If you aren't a member of it, why not today? If you've never become that member, why not recognize that only the Lord can add you to the church, Acts 2.47, and He'll do so when you comply with His terms of admission. These aren't terms I've drawn up that anyone else has. It's terms He has drawn up. It requires you believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You repent of your sins. You confess His great name as the Messiah, the Son of God, and be baptized. 
if you would wish to allow that to be taken care of today, we could celebrate with you just as the angels in heaven would do so, Luke 15, 7. If you have become a member of the body of Christ at one former day, knew about the strength of that anchor, but over the course of time, Satan has worked his way into your life and you have allowed him far more leeway than he needs to have. You know that your station is not good. Maybe you have called things that are evil good and vice versa. Maybe you haven't been too sure. Why not rededicate your life to him? 2014 will be a, lie, a year like none other if you'll do that. If today we can be of help praying for you, just like was done for Simon in Acts chapter 8, won't you let that be known? Why not come forward even while together we stand and while we sing?